Thank you for downloading the African Studies Seminar podcast, presented by the University of Oxford's African Studies Center. Okay, I'm going to stand, partly just technology requires it, because uh, the PowerPoint, we don't have a clicker. So. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, thank you. It is nice to be back. Should I close this one? Yes, yes. And uh, it is also nice to uh, be among fellow Africanists. It is a little lonely at the LSE, uh, being the only person who works in African politics in my department. Um, but uh, um, today I'm going to talk a little bit, um, as Dave mentioned, it does come out of my doctoral work. But in fact, um, I did debate what I should present today. And I thought it would be interesting to present something a little bit different to what I've done in the past, which has uh, at this point gotten a little old uh, for me. Um, but I say that not because I want you to be soft because I'm presenting something quite new, but because I actually would like uh, to invite you and welcome creative thinking about some of the data that I'm about to present. Um, I haven't fully exploited this data as yet, and I think that some out-of-the-box thinking about what to do with this data would be, would be very helpful. So license to be creative with what I'm about to present to you. So the title of the talk is, as you see, Who Kills? Explaining Differential Selection in so it sounds somewhat theoretical and somewhat technical, uh, but let me explain what I mean. So the research question is a relatively simple one. Why, is it, why do some individuals participate in ethnic or group violence, or violence along, uh, defined along bound, uh, intergroup boundaries, and others not? The question is deceptively simple. I'm not trying to explain why violence occurs in the first place, which is a, a much bigger question. Um, and an entirely different presentation. I'm actually trying to explain the question of why it is that certain individuals come to participate and others do not. Um, and it's an important conceptual distinction and I'll show you why. Uh, as Dave mentioned, this comes out of uh, data that I collected originally in Rwanda, going back several years at this point. Um, and I'm going to present effectively the data very quickly that I found, the evidence that I found in answer to this question for the doctorate, which was largely negative and inconclusive. And uh, I also went back to Rwanda recently uh, in order to be able to answer this question more thoroughly, and I want to present some of this data. But let me tell you a little bit about why this case is particularly, well, what's distinctive about the Rwanda case, uh, because that has important implications for generalizability and travelability of some of these findings. So some of these characteristics, by the way, can everybody see? Because I know that I'm standing somewhat in front of the screen. But, yeah, okay. So uh, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the violence witnessed in 94 is the scale and the speed. So in terms of scale, depending on what estimates you believe, it ranges from uh, as low as 250,000 to as high as 1 million uh, of the Tutsi ethnic group were exterminated in uh, less than 102 days in Rwanda. My own data suggests that the, uh, as a proportion, roughly three quarters of Rwanda's Tutsi population were exterminated in uh, actually the first two to three weeks is when most of the violence actually took place um, with, slower with slower tailing off of the violence towards the end of the genocide. So the scale and speed of the violence is something that's actually quite distinctive about Rwanda. Um, the second is that there are few places in Rwanda where violence did not happen. Um, the, violence, <coughs> the few communities in which violence did not take place were communities where the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the largely Tutsi rebel army, uh, occupied relatively early on in the genocide, thus preventing the opportunity for the population to mobilize. 
But a characteristic which I think is most illuminating for the question that I have at hand here is the question of civilian, the distinctive characteristic of civilian mobilization and participation in Rwanda's genocide. Um, we have less clear data on the extent of civilian participation in Rwanda's genocide. My own research, my own data, which comes out of data that I collected through Rwanda's informal, through Rwanda's gachacha process, the, the reconciliation and justice process that uh, is now winding down in Rwanda after 10 years uh, in operation, is that one in four, one in four adult Hutu men committed an act of violence during Rwanda's genocide. Now that is an astonishing statistic um, in of itself. Uh, the, the enormity of what that means is, is somewhat staggering. Um, but, and this is nonetheless the question that drives this project, it does mean that three in four didn't. Um, so when I set off for Rwanda many years ago at this point, asking this question about how do we explain such a remarkable civilian mobilization in Rwanda, I came back with answers that explains why it is that one in four didn't participate, which is an entirely separate presentation, but not with the answer to the question, well, why didn't the other 75% of the population? Um, okay, so I say that because that is the, the empirical puzzle that drove the research that I'm about to present here today. So let me start off um, by just explaining how I went about answering the question. So briefly, the design of this project. This is, uh, okay, let's see. Um, I basically tried to, to collect data at different levels in Rwanda. Rwanda itself is a remarkably small country, which makes research somewhat easy, just because it doesn't take so long to, to be able to get between research sites. But I did begin at the beginning, choose, this is a map of Rwanda, which shows, uh, as it existed in 1994, the boundaries, the administrative boundaries here are prefectures, so following the old uh, Belgian colonial uh, model here. So, and the two sites that I chose, one was in the north of the country, near the New Garden border. The war was very close. Um, uh, in fact, that's where the war, the front line of the war was located, on the Mugengeli border. And also, you can see down there in the south, in Butare prefecture. Um, the idea was to, to create a comparison. So one area where insecurity was very high, and one before the genocide began, and one area where the, the insecurity was comparatively low. Um, I then stepped it down a level, so I looked at those two prefectures and I did compare them as cases. Um, and I also said, right, well, I need to do something a little bit uh, more fine-grained. So I chose four cells, which, are the, which were the smallest administrative unit in Rwanda in 1994. So a cell is a community, it's an administrative community that comprises rough, on average, about 1,000 individuals, so about 200 or so households. <coughs> and I chose four, uh, four such communities to compare. And I chose them on, if you like, a dependent variable, basically the level of violence that each of those communities had experienced. I chose two which had experienced a relatively high level of violence during the genocide. In other words, uh, a high proportion of the Tutsi community died during the violence then, two um, which did not comparatively low. Um, but then <coughs> I went down yet one further level, down to the micro level, to the individual level, and conducted a survey drawing on, stratified by whether people have participated in the violence or not. So uh, roughly two-thirds, so we see just under 300 respondents in this survey, uh, two-thirds of whom are people who did not participate, if you like, bystanders to the violence, and about a third who did. 
And what I want to, to do is start by presenting very, very briefly what I found after exhaustive investigation uh, into, with this, this survey data um, that might explain what it is that's distinctive about killers um, and what distinguishes them from the non-killers. Um, so I began this by asking, looking at this somewhat inductively. So I started, simply went there with this idea that if I started interviewing people, the answer to this question of why some people came to participate would emerge from the narratives, from the interviews that I was conducting. Uh, naive as I was, a PhD student, but I, I, I show here some of the methodological issues um, that emerged from this. And I like this quote partly because it reminds me of the, the dark days in my early PhD research when nothing seemed clear and it took a little while for, for the light to emerge. But this is a, a very typical narrative that I, I heard. And I'm going to read it out because it's quite <coughs> instructive. Um, and it tells a little bit about the methodological difficulties of interviewing and trying to collect uh, answers to this type of question. So this is with, um, I happen to have anonymized his name here, Leopold. Uh, he was 32 at the time they interviewed him, so he was 21 uh, at the time of the genocide. Um, and this is from the south in Mutari, when the violence, uh, where the war was, was distant, right? So here's what, I asked the question, so tell me the story of the genocide in your community. So he says, so after a few days, I should explain that this is part of a, a bigger interview, so I've just taken this out of context a little bit, but it's nonetheless quite interesting. After a few days, it was evident that there were two groups, those being hunted and those who hunted. That is when people became greedy and started to kill and eat people's cows. After it was evident that there were some people who were the enemy, some people then said, we're used to this because of history. Then those hiding people told these people to flee rather than dying where they hid them. There were people who participated in the genocide as a way of buying their lives. They dodged at the beginning, but as time passed, this became impossible. I then asked, did some people participate because they wanted to get rich? Because people had weak brains, sorry, somewhat leading question, because people had weak brains as some were hungry and poor, they started to harvest people's land, and in that way, they would not be so poor. That is when people started dividing the land. Even those who did, those who did not participate, and so those at the bottom who had little land, would get land. And those in the high authorities said, if these people are not there, we would be better off than before. So I put that up there because in this very small uh, statement, Lena, uh, Leopold has told me a numerous, given me numerous reasons, uh, conflicting reasons even, for why it is that people participated. He tells us at the beginning that people participated because they were greedy, suggesting that material opportunistic motives behind participation. He then goes on to tell us, well, um, it was something to do with the war, because people were the enemy and we're used to it. So the war rationale comes out. Then he also goes on to tell us that some people were coerced, or they did this involuntarily. People did this as a way of buying their lives at the beginning. He then goes on, admittedly, I don't ask the leading question, um, uh, to say that people did it out of poverty as well saying that uh, they did it because they could get the, the produce that was growing on people's land at the time. And at the very end, um, just to, to throw in, as it were, the final possible explanation with this, he also tells us, well, it's because people were simply following orders. And so pointing the finger to, to the state and the role of the, the authorities in Rwanda's genocide here. People did this uh, because the high authorities said that's what they should do. So induct an inductive approach to this question was problematic because um, it was very difficult to disambiguate motivation from this type of 
nowadays. So uh, I thought about this a little bit more deductively and came up with the questionnaire. Um, yeah. So this, this questionnaire that I used, the instrument that I used in this survey, was designed to test numerous theoretical propositions about theories about why it is that people come to participate in group violence or ethnic violence or some kind of intergroup violence, and there is no shortage of them in the literature. And I'm not going to, to, uh, to bore you with uh, 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 the extensive amount of data that came out of the survey. It was a, a very long survey. It was uh, over 200 questions. It took a couple of hours to be able to ask these questions. Um, I could only get people to sit in that one place for that amount of time if I offered them piles of sugar, which, uh, or uh, free primus, uh, the, the, kind of a popular beer in the region. But uh, anyway, but I, at, at the end of this exhaustive process of collecting all this data, um, these are the hypotheses that I tested. Um, and I'll just quickly run through them without actually going into the questions in detail. I did test this idea that uh, you know, young men uh, are more likely than other groups in society to participate in this type of violence. And the literature here, the theory here, is a little, a little unclear on why that might be the case, but there seems to be some consensus that young men are where we should begin to look. So there are ideas that come out to do with how young men may feel particularly frustrated because there may be limited opportunities, economic opportunities for them, and as a result, that frustration uh, looks for an outlet. Um, there's this idea that young men, particularly those who are unemployed, the opportunity cost of them participating in risky behavior such as civil wars, rebellions, and even possibly genocides um, is because they don't have jobs, it's because they don't have families to worry about, they don't have children that they have to provide for. So, you know, this is another theoretical logic. There's also logic that has to do with how young men may be more susceptible to normative, normative ideals about manhood and masculinity and that somehow participating in violence is a form of affirming that, that, that masculinity and that manhood. Anyway, but just to point out that there are numerous ideas behind why it is that young men may particularly be susceptible. And what I effectively did was simply uh, I conducted a, a logistic regression, just a technique that allows me to measure the probability of a person becoming a, a, a killer based on whether they, their age and their gender. And what I found was, okay, it was there was some uh, uh, explanatory power, but it was actually remarkably weak. Um, for those who are interested, the formal interpretation of the data um, sounds a little bit technical to put it in those terms, but for every year that a person was older, the probability, or the odds in particular, because this was a logistic reaction, of their actually participating in the violence decreases by 2%. Um, so relatively, the point being, it's a relatively small, uh, marginal <coughs> impact uh, that age has. Um, gender was very strong, though. Uh, male, uh, six times as likely as women to have participated in the violence. So no doubt there about the masculine, about the gender importance of that. I also tested uh, uh, various other hypotheses uh, using this data, comparing the killer, profile, the killer group to the non-killer group. I looked at the cluster of theories that have to do with the role of identity, the role of ethnicity. Um, trying to operationalize this. There are numerous ways the literature tries, tries to operationalize this and explain what relationship identity may have with violence. Um, everything from the cross-national, cross-sectional stuff that looks at ethnic fractionalization and ethnic dominance measure at the country level um, to the individual level stuff that looks at uh, questions of prejudice, racism, xenophobia, ethnocentrism more generally. Um, I tried to operationalize notions of ethnocentrism, whether there are certain attitudes or certain beliefs 
that, uh, that killers held, that were perhaps held them uh, more frequently or more strongly than non-killers. Um, but in, in short, the answer is no. Uh, when you compare the two groups, um, there were no differences. Both killers and non-killers, participants and non-participants, were equally as likely to hold similar views um, on these questions that I thought about Rwanda's history and particularly the uh, history of inter-ethnic relations between Hutu and Tutsi. Um, deprivation. Uh, Rwanda in uh, 1993 was, a, I, if I remember, 149th when I looked at this in the Human Development uh, Index report of, uh, in rankings of countries. So that has uh, spawned uh, considerable speculation that somehow um, in a poor country, uh, there must be some nexus between um, low levels of development, low levels of, uh, uh, with high levels of poverty, and participation in the violence. And there's even empirical work uh, at the individual level using national agricultural surveys in Rwanda. Philip Berwimp's fascinating profile of, uh, of a peasant perpetrator to suggest that, uh, that there is some relationship between poverty and, uh, and participation. Um, so I did try to operationalize this as well, and I tried to measure not only absolute levels, objective measures of deprivation, so looking at people's education levels, looking at people's uh, land holding, how much land they held, for example, uh, looking at what their occupation was, whether they had income from the farm or off the farm, usually people who had income off the farm generally were a little bit better off. Um, I also tried to measure this subjectively. I asked people, do you feel, how did you feel that you have enough to be able to, to live and so on, as well as objectively. Anyway, without going into too much of the detail, the point being, once again, very little, uh, no statistically significant difference. Um, I'll quickly zip through the last two here. They're a little bit different. They're highlighted in red, and I'll explain why in a moment. I also tested this idea of security and insecurity being uh, a motivator that, uh, um, you know, the theory here comes out of international relations theory about security dilemmas and how it is that you cannot tell whether they're going to come and get you first, so you act before they get you. And I did hear um, statements to that effect, that we were acting out of self-defense because we thought that they, uh, they whatever. rarely, by the way, do people use the term Tutsi uh, or Hutu when they speak with me, partly because of the policy that's in place at the moment in Rwanda. Um, they often refer to it obliquely. They would say those people and will find some other euphemism or way around uh, avoiding the use of the label. But essentially, <coughs> I tested this idea that fear, or if you like, what's the, the mechanism behind it, threat, um, is a way of mobilizing participation in, in violence. And so I asked people about what impact the war had on their lives, and an open-ended question, and uh, then coded the answers that I got. And insecurity, uh, the war had a negative impact on lives because it made people feel most in, more insecure, um, was the second most frequent response that I got. The most frequent response was that it had a negative impact on inter-ethnic relations. But insecurity was a, was a big thing. Um, and then lastly, I tried to uh, measure the importance there, this notion that the state and the rather unusual power and strength of the Rwandan state had something to do with why it is that so many people participated. I believe that is right. Um, so I asked people about the presence and the, the role of the state in their lives, a series of questions to measure that. Um, but once again, I find that there are no statistically significant differences in the way that people who participated in the violence and those who did not felt um, about the state. But the reason that those two last hypotheses are highlighted in red is because um, even though there was no difference between those two groups of people, they both score very highly. So in other words, what I mean is that both, uh, all 
respondents said that the insecurity was a big thing. So something like 70-something percent mentioned insecurity in their answers. And similarly with the, the authority, um, I can't remember, I think it was 60-something percent, um, uh, pointed to the, uh, to the pressure from the state um, in their lives, the omnipresence of the state in their lives. Okay, so this um, was part of the, well, it's an entire chapter in, in what was the PhD thesis, um, effectively a negative finding. So it was, uh, it was rather disappointing after doing all of this, uh, going out and constructing all <laughs> these questions, testing them, giving all these people free beer, and then finding that, you know, um, gosh, no, there's, there's nothing, there's no doubt, nothing I can find in the demographic profile, and there's nothing I can find in your attitudes and beliefs that kind of distinguish you from, you know, your fellow, uh, your fellow, your brethren who didn't participate. So that's the puzzle. Uh, okay, so the question then becomes what explains this? And this is what took me back to Rwanda recently. Um, most people like to put their PhD thesis away and never come back to it. Um, maybe I'm a masochist, but I decided that I actually wanted to see if I could get find an answer to this question. Um, so I went back to Rwanda and I collected these data that I'm going to present to you here. And these data, they're, they're still relatively raw, um, and I haven't fully exploited them as yet. And these, but they, I welcome your suggestions on how um, we might interpret this data somewhat innovatively. But okay, so possible explanations of what's going on here. Um, the first is this was, might be a classic textbook example of simple ecological fallacy. So perhaps I had stumbled on, in the case of genocidal violence and group violence, what it is that you know, William Robinson, I suppose the person who coined the phrase an ecological fallacy, found back in 1950. Uh, in case you're not familiar with this, this term, the idea essentially is that when <clears throat> it's about trying to explain how macro-level theory and micro-level evidence often are at some type of disjunction. Uh, there's a disconnect between how we theorize about what goes on at this level and what actually happens at the individual level. So and William, in William Robinson's case, what he showed was that he took the 48 states of the United States and showed that there was a correlation between high levels of immigrant communities and high levels of literacy. So if you believe, if you fell for the ecological fallacy, you would think then, oh, okay, so immigrant communities have high levels of literacy. Um, he then takes it down a level, he goes down to the micro level, and he says, well, actually, when you actually look at the individual level, what you find is that obviously immigrants um, have a lower level of literacy. They're simply attracted to, to states where there are uh, relatively high levels of literacy. So the point being is that you, know, you seem to, you need to go at the level below. So many of the theories, those hypotheses that I tested and showed in the survey data, are theories that emerged from macro level theorization, usually at the level of the group, or the ecological level, or the level of the, the, the state or the country level, um, without necessarily evidence to support them at the micro level. So okay, so possibly this is an ecological fallacy. I believe that's partly right, that uh, there is an ecological fallacy going on here, and that I've used this theory from up here, to but uh, don't find any support from it down here. But it still doesn't answer the question of, well, okay, and even with the micro-level evidence, I still don't have an answer to the question of why it is that some people do and some people, some people did and some people didn't. A second possible explanation for what's going on comes out of, uh, comes from Stathis Kalibas, um, who did fascinating research um, into the under-research Greek Civil War. And one of the theoretical innovations, like the theoretical contributions he made, he's made to our understanding of um, war and violence is that we should consider violence as conceptually or analytically distinct from war. So what causes violence is distinct from what causes war. And if you make that 
disconnect, if then uh, you will go some way to explaining why it is that some, um, some areas experience high levels of violence in wartime and other areas explain low levels. And uh, Stathis's work has also highlighted the importance of understanding local factors, micro-level politics, for example. So he suggests that sometimes uh, uh, you would find that the violence that occurs within the Civil War may have nothing to do with the meta-narrative about why that war was taking place, but has to do with personal score scuttling or local politics at the grassroots level that simply occurs within the opportunity or within the space that war actually takes place. So that's one possible way to explain this, that uh, the violence is distinct to, to war or distinct to genocide. So the causes of the war, the causes of genocide, have nothing to do with the causes of violence. But Canavas, Stathis is explaining why we have, why certain people are killed, you know, why we have violence in some areas but not in others. What he's not doing is telling us why certain people participate in the violence and others do not. So um, not satisfactory for at least accounting for uh, what I'm interested in here, right? So let's see. Okay, so I began to think, right, I'm not going to find any satisfaction in the literature that, uh, that's in my area. Maybe I need to think about um, how this question of differential selection, differential participation, has been addressed in other literatures on violence. So I naturally migrated towards the literature on criminal violence. I thought, well, okay, how do they explain why it is that certain individuals come to commit homicide and others do not. Um, I quickly found that the, this idea of the deviant, the criminal deviant, the deviant personality was not going to work in the case of a country where one in four men have participated in, uh, in, in the genocide, right? So I then began to think, what about political violence uh, like terrorism, for example? So how do they, they deal with this? So the early work on terrorism suggests, fell once again into this idea that it's uh, to do with deviancy, that there is something is there is a, such a thing as the psychological profile of the terrorist. Um, but that seems to be discounted by what I was finding was that there was, not, there was no distinctive profile or predisposition uh, that the perpetrators showed in the case of Rwanda. Um, there's this amazing study before 9-11 from the US government. It's like several hundred page federally researched project that tries to describe in painful psychological detail what a terrorist might look like. And it's online and work. it's worth having a look at because you can see how far we've come away uh, since then. We now know, for example, the research that has been spawned on suicide terrorism, that there is no single profile of a suicide terrorist. They can be rich, they can be poor, they can be men, they can be women, they can come from a different strata of society, and we don't have a single profile for that. So the profile idea, not working. Um, <clears throat> I then look at the literature on rebellion and insurgency. This question of who fights, who gets recruited, into, into civil wars and into to rebellions. So there's a, a quite a well-known article here by McCartan Humphreys um, and his co-authors here, um, which is entitled Who Fights? And they look at, they draw on survey data that comes out of Sierra Leone on, uh, on uh, combatants, a big survey. And uh, what they come up with is that, okay, um, they don't discount, they don't dismiss the idea of predispositions, but they show that, uh, that uh, recruitment actually is a social phenomenon. And they point to the, the role of social sanctions. Um, and as well as selective incentives for recruiting people. So I began to feel that there was something in this. But, but the literature which ended up, I think, for me, being the, uh, the click, um, or where I felt that there was the, the strongest um, uh, nugget, theoretical nugget here, came from work that was conducted much, much earlier. Work that was conducted on social movements, the classic works of the 1970s, uh, trying to explain 
why certain people become activists and join social movements, as well as the early work on, uh, on riots and civil disorder. So at the end of the 1960s, explaining why the 60s, uh, why there was so much disorder, why there were so many young people on the streets, why it is that there, there was so much African-American discontent and so on. So there was an extensive amount of research in the 1960s coming out of American political science and American sociology on this question of, you know, why is it that some people engage in this, these actions of civil disorder and so on. Um, so I highlighted the two here which I think are the most, most pathbreaking and which have the greatest to teach us about uh, uh, violence in the uh, differential selection in the context of, of intergroup violence. The first is Snow's article. And what he does, he looks at social movements and he says that what explains it is not predisposition. He can't find, just as I can't find, some unusual profile for activists, right? But what he does find is that um, structural availability, he terms it, the simple availability of an individual to the freedom, if you like, they don't have any constraints on them, that allows them to participate in such social movements is in fact a very important factor. McPhail, who does a kind of one of these meta-reviews of all of the research that's been conducted on civil disorder and on riots, concludes that what he's found is that riots are most likely to take place at pedestrian crossings at certain types of day. So he actually highlights the role of what he considers spatial and temporal factors, that these are very important in explaining why it is that certain individuals um, happen to participate in those riots and others do not, space and time. So, and this for me was interesting. So maybe space had something to do with this, and perhaps also time as well. These micro situational factors might have something to do with explaining differential selection. So, right, okay, so I'm going to switch. Let's hope this works. Here we go. So, ooh, let me get this to present. I thought space was important. Uh, Okay, so um, I thought maybe I should do a detailed study of space uh, and how space interacted with violence in the context uh, of Rwanda, down at the micro level. So, map of Rwanda again, the, I just, the, the, the red highlighted area is the research area that I decided to do further work in. Um, it's actually not that big bright red area, you can't almost see it at the back room, but even within that little bright red area, there's a tiny little speck in the bottom corner there, that is the area that I chose to do further research in. It was one of those four communities that I mentioned earlier. So I chose to go back here. It's a, a sector in, in Rwandan administrative terminology back in 1994. The sector was called Tare. Um, so I said, I'm going to go back to Tare because, well, I know this sector very well. Um, I was there for my initial field work. And importantly, I knew uh, who had participated in the violence there. I knew who had not. I knew who had been killed, um, and I pretty much knew the story of how the genocide unfolded very well in this community. So I thought that there were considerable advantages in going back to this community and figuring out a little bit more about the, the space um, and how that might, these micro-situational things might explain differential selection. Okay. Um, oh, I should explain. So a sector, just an administrative hierarchy, prefecture at the top, a commune, which is the bright highlighted area, is the level below it, then it's the sector, and then uh, a cell at the very, very bottom. Okay. So this is a picture, a uh, photograph I took on this last trip, because I wanted to give you some sense of what Tari looks like, the topography, the lay of the land, if you will. <coughs> and this is taken from 
the main road. I'm just going to go forward a slide. Okay, so this is um, a map of the sector, right? Um, the, air, the lighter area indicates the, the boundaries of sector Tare. Um, come up a little closer and show you some things here that are important. This, this black light here is the main road that comes from Butare, the, the capital of uh, the, the region, so that's the main town in the area, and heads west out to another prefecture, Gikongo. So this road comes here, and as you can see, it passes through and intersects uh, here. This is the marketplace in, uh, in Tare. And uh, this is where the main road meets um, the other minor pathways, the minor roadways that go through Tari. This is the only paved Macadam road that flows through the, through the sector, and the others are unpaved roads. Some other interesting, important features to point out here, uh, these are supposed to be beer steins, and those are to indicate the location of uh, bars, local cabarets in the sector. Um, so there are just four. Um, I pointed this out to my wife, showed this to my this morning, and she said, only four? Um, I thought that was quite a lot for 2,500 people, but she thought that wasn't, at least in her experience uh, in Benin, she thought there would be much higher density of cabarets. But in any case, if there is, despite the fact that there may be an unusually low density of cabarets, there is also this building here, the government office, the local government office. So basically, it's just a two-room building. Uh, this is where the business that relates to the sector is conducted. Um, where whatever important documents related to the sector are located, and the local government official basically conducts all the necessary meetings related to the business of the sector there. This church is the parish of Ugango, and I point that out because this is where, sadly, almost all of the Tutsi who live in Tare would meet their end. They gather here, this is a point of refuge, sadly, unfortunately, uh, facilitating the work of their hunters by gathering one place, but they would be massacred in, this, uh, in that church. Uh, what else do I want to point out to you? There is also this one school, it's a primary school in the sector, um, and the outlying areas, these are just other neighboring sectors. It's on the border with another prefecture, but it's within the jurisdiction of Utare. Okay, so I wanted to, to show you the topography of this, of this sector. Um, and this, so this, this photograph, is, so it allows you to see it a little bit more clearly, um, is taken from here. It's taken uh, here, looking this way, heading, looking northwards here, okay? Uh, so just to give you an idea that um, uh, there's very little forested area, and it's very difficult to hide in this sector. Um, they're relatively, uh, it's, it's highly cultivated, as you can see, the fields and low-lying areas here, as well as actually fields up on the slopes are highly cultivated, consistent with Rwanda's very high population density and, and intense farming. Um, but okay, so that's the map of uh, uh, Tare. So, um, what I want to do uh, is just tell you a little bit about Tare and what happened during the genocide here. So, it's really tough to get reliable microdata on what happened during Rwanda's genocide. So I'm going to show off a little bit because I was able to get what I think is relatively reliable data on this community um, that I'd like to present here um, about what happened and so forth. But okay, here we go. The first, I know the size, so it's uh, just over five kilometers square and uh, has a population density, a very high population density, high even for Rwanda, higher than, than the national average, which I think is in the mid 300 persons per square kilometer. Um, in terms of its demography, there were altogether 704 distinct 
households in this community. Uh, total population of two, just over 2,500, of whom 8% um, were self-identified as Tutsi ethnic origin. That figure is actually similar to the national average, at least as it was reported in the last population mm -hmm. census we have from Rwanda in 1991, though it's actually a little low for Butare uh, in the south of the country, which has historically higher levels of, uh, or a higher, higher concentration of Tutsi living in, in that prefecture. Okay, um, inter-ethnic marriages, um, it's quite important as well. So I discovered that there were altogether 38 marriages that took place across ethnic lines um, before they were, they, were, they were there before the genocide in 1994. So just over a third of all the Tutsi who lived in the community um, were married to, uh, to, to, to Hutu. As you can see, most of them are marriages that took place between Hutu men and Tutsi wives. There's a much smaller number between Tutsi men and Hutu women. And also, tellingly, uh, all of those inter-ethnic marriages between Hutu men and Tutsi women the Tutsi women survive in Tare. Um, not so sadly in the case of Tutsi men married to Hutu women. And this is consistent with uh, the cultural notion in Rwanda that uh, women do not have an ethnicity um, because they take the ethnicity of their husbands and uh, uh, as do children. Okay. Um, so, and in terms of civilian participation, so I had mentioned a figure of one in four for the whole country. This has, I discovered, uh, one in six committed some act of violence here. So in case you're wondering how I know this, um, I benefited largely from the Gachacha process, which was, under, which was at that point coming to an end. Um, so it had run its course. But I also had extensive data of my own that I collected in Rwanda's prisons about what had happened, not only in this community, but the other three cell communities in which I had met, that I had mentioned earlier. But essentially, after the Gachacha process, uh, 95 individuals were successfully convicted, um, were found guilty, uh, 40, 49 were acquitted, and 25 were not tried at all, or did not go through the Gachacha process, either because they were already dead, or because these were individuals who had fled, this is very common I found with my research, they had fled the country and had chosen never to come back. Um, <clears throat> okay, so that was the mobilization level for Tare. And uh, the violence levels. Okay, 63% um, of all Tutsi, I discovered, had uh, lost their lives. <clears throat> the vast majority of them, as I pointed out, actually lost their lives just outside of the sector itself. So they weren't killed <coughs> in their homes. They were killed in that parish, Mugango Church, that I mentioned earlier, where they had all gathered um, seeking refuge. Only 10 were actually killed inside the sector. Um, 76 survived altogether. Only 18 of those 76 are, are, are male. Um, and overwhelmingly, in fact, they were children at the time. So these were uh, boys who were born in the, in the mid or late 1980s, so um, were not adults at the time. Okay. And then last, oh, yeah, okay. So, um, and let me just tell you the story briefly of how this genocide unfolded. Um, in the case of Tare, uh, before the events of April 6, 1994, and even during the civil war that led up to the genocide, relations between the two communities were good. And this is not some kind of you know, wonderful uh, sweetness and light picture that my Hutu respondents are trying to foist upon me. Um, I do collaborate this with 
uh, interviews with, with Tutsi, uh, focus group interview with Tutsi survivors from this community, who report that, uh, that things were pretty good um, before April 6, 1994. And even at the politically and ethnically sensitive moments in those years leading up to the genocide, so for example with the advent of multi-partyism in 1991, um, the creation of ethnically defined parties, and also the assassination of Burundi's first Hutu president in Ndadaye in 1993 across the border, which are important events in Rwanda's macro-level, national-level politics, have very little imp impact on local-level life in Tare. So basically, things were, were good. There was a cleavage. The cleavage was mostly along inter-party lines. Multi-parties didn't have a big impact on this community, but the parties did not fight along ethnic lines. So you found that, I found that Hutu and Tutsi actually belonged to the same parties. Uh, uh, in, num in good numbers for the ruling party as well as good numbers for the opposition parties as well. Okay, but things change. Um, on the fateful day, uh, when the president is assassinated, it isn't clear what should happen in this community. Um, part of this is because to just step back out of Tari for a moment, remember that Tari is located within this prefecture, Utare. And some of you may be aware that the south of Rwanda, the violence happened much later than in the rest of the country. And in the case of Butari, the reason for this, the primary reason for this, is the identity of the prefect, the state authority figure at the local level, uh, a man called Jean-Baptiste Hagiramana, who himself is a Tutsi, he was the only Tutsi prefect in Rwanda before the genocide, who resisted uh, the orders that were coming, the messages that were coming from Rwanda's new central government, the extremist government. Um, and he held out for almost two weeks until he was ultimately replaced on April 19th, um, and then also killed on that day as well. Um, but before that happens, between April 6th and April 18th, the next important event in uh, the history of this community, um, things are a little bit uncertain. The main mobilizer in this community, the person who ultimately would be uh, responsible for getting so many people together to participate in these hunting attacks, in these hunting groups, um, his name is Emmanuel Recarajo, still alive, uh, still in the prison, and fascinating to interview. He, um, even though he would be, if you, if you like, the archenemy of the Tutsi during the genocide, in that period of time between April 6th and April 18th, um, attended a baptism of a Tutsi child, uh, Didas Kambanda's child. He attended that baptism and also offered a cow uh, as a, a gift. Um, in this event as well. So two things that are interesting about this, and this was corroborated by several other individuals in the community. First of all, there are baptisms taking place, um, whilst the rest of the country is, uh, is emerged, submerged in violence, right? Um, so life is relatively normal, uh, that uh, there's some uncertainty and there's some fear, and also that um, there's a high level still of inter-ethnic good relations still between these two communities. They have started mobilizing and participating in security um, patrols, they called Irondo, they would go at night and uh, look for the enemy. And interestingly, what I found was that both Hutu and Tutsi were participating in these night patrols to look for the enemy, um, even though it would become very clear that the enemy, in fact, were the very Tutsi who were participating in these night patrols. But it wasn't clear at the beginning entirely, right? So things changed on April 18th, so just under two weeks uh, into the violence. Sinde Kabwabo is Rwanda's new president after Hapiamana has been assassinated, extremist, and also from Butare himself. He makes the trip back to his home region, and he goes, he passes through, that, on that main road, Sector Tare, that passes through Sector Tare, he makes that trip 
to visit Simbi Parish Church because at Simbi Parish Church is gathered a very large number of Tutsi. And around them um, uh, in Maraba uh, commune are these Hutu who don't know what to do with all these Tutsi who have gathered at this parish church. Sindhuk Kugwabu comes and he gives the commune burgomaster the green light. He tells him, what are you doing? Why are you not working? Uh, why are you not doing what all the other burgomasters are doing around the country? That marks the signal, that marks the beginning of the violence in Bhutan. And very quickly, the following day, after we get the signal from above, um, on April 19th, we get the first attack involving individuals from Tare sector on Sohu, which is the neighboring sector to the south uh, uh, of Tare. And uh, the Tutsi, there's a concentration of Tutsi on those particular hills. Um, you'll be familiar with the idea that uh, when uh, fathers pass on, they often divide their land and pass it on to their sons. So you'd often end up with these communities, or these pockets, if you like, of Tutsis who all concentrated in the same area. So there's a concentration in Sohu. This first attack was unsuccessful. Um, the community was not particularly well organized, and the Tutsi repelled them. Um, April 20th, Emmanuel Lekarapo decides that they need a plan of action. He calls a meeting in his home, which, by the way, is located at that intersection point between the main road um, and, the, and the sector, right, at that marketplace. He lives in what is effectively the, the center of the community. He calls a meeting in his home, and he uh, calls upon certain individuals, and I'll talk a little bit about the identity of those individuals in a moment, um, to organize and mobilize people to go and gather against um, the Tutsi uh, in the community. Oh, I should just back up a moment to explain that after April 18th, the Tutsi who were living inside Tare um, realize that the game is up, and that night leave. They leave their homes and they gather in uh, Mugango Parish uh, for the most part. Some decide that their, their survival chances are better if they actually go alone, and that's why we end up with some people who do survive in the community. But okay, so Emmanuel organizes this meeting on April 20th. <coughs> April 21st, uh, they set out, um, and the first place they go is to uh, Mugango Parish and they're highly successful compared to their initial attack. And within um, uh, that first morning, uh, we, I estimate there was close to about 500 Tutsi who had sought refuge, not only from within Tare, but from other parts uh, surrounding areas to gather there. And they were largely wiped out in that first morning. Astonishing. Um, and it wasn't only individuals from sector Tare who came, it was uh, individuals from other areas that also gathered there as well. That same afternoon, they then heard further south to, it's not on the map, but I showed you, to a place called Gihindu Muyaga, uh, which is a monastery, and there's a, a, a youth camp there, uh, Camp de Jeune, and they make uh, an attack on the Tutsi who were gathered there as well. Again, successful. They weren't complete that day on April 21st. On April 22nd, they decide to go back and go after the Tutsi who were living in Sobu. At this point, they no longer live in their homes. They have now taken all refuge in the local health center there, again, making the job rather easier for, for their killers. Um, but they attack, and once again, they are successful. At this point, um, we've had three major events, or three major attacks in Tare. Uh, Ugango, Kehidumiyaga, and then Sobu. Uh, and in those three attacks, effectively most of the Tutsi have been wiped out. From April 23rd onwards, um, we continue to have attacks, um, but not on the same scale, um, and not as, as uh, on the same intensity as before. These would be raids that would be led, would be led to look for Tutsi who had escaped, who worked at those, attack, at those kill sites, and who were still hiding in, in the sector. Um, and that continues uh, throughout May and June until the arrival of the RPF on July 2nd in Utah. Okay, so 
I think this allows me, yeah. So I'll now get back to show you the map. <coughs> so this is the data that I want to present, okay? So the first thing I did was uh, uh, I hired a geography student from the local university, and I gave him a GPS and said, please go out and locate and collect the geographic coordinates for every single household in this community. Um, I paid him well, because it was not an easy job, uh, and he had a research assistant, but they went around and they collected with these, uh, the effectively geographic coordinates, the longitude and latitude for every single community, every single household, every single individual in this community. So here they are. Uh, this shows you the dispersion of these homes in, uh, in Rwanda, right? Uh, oh, sorry, these are individuals, but obviously some of these dots represent more than one individual because these are people who live in the same household. Um, and it's pretty evenly distributed. You'll see a few individuals that are just outside of the boundaries. That might be either because the boundaries themselves were poorly defined by Rwanda's National GIS Center, or because my uh, research assistant simply entered the data poorly. Hard to know, I have to go back and check those. Um, but okay, um, that's that. All right, um, this now is a map that shows out of all of those individuals, who participated in the violence. So I'm looking, remember, for spatial patterns. I'm thinking, well, okay, is so there something about where people live that might explain uh, why it is that they came to participate, right? And they're in pink because uh, pink is the color of fashion in Rwanda's prisons. For anybody who's actually done research in Rwanda, uh, they make them wear these bright pink prison uniforms, I guess, because it makes it difficult for them to run away. But uh, anyway, so pink. Um, and you'll see that there's no obvious eyeballing it, no obvious pattern in, in this as yet. Okay, I also, these are also look at the people who got off um, from the Kachacha process, and that was important because I wanted to recognize the possibility that the Kachacha process might have been subverted, and the people got off who shouldn't have got off um, because they struck deals, which was, uh, which was not unheard of in, uh, in Rwanda, so uh, guilty people getting away, right? So <coughs> this is a map that shows the, the acquitted, um, and here they are together, so if you like, the world, the universe of everybody who has been accused of participating um, in Rwanda's, in, in the violence in Thai, right? Um, again, nothing that immediately jumps out at you here. Okay. So then I said, right, well, maybe it has something to do with where, uh, not where people themselves live. Maybe it has to do with where these entrepreneurs live, these uh, people who mobilized, uh, like Emmanuel, for example. So these are, these little red dots are, the homes of all of the people who were actively involved in mobilizing the population. And these, I call them then tier one mobilizers, and they have three different levels of mobilizers. But um, tier one mobilizers are people who effectively participate, sit down and meet, meet, sit down and talk about what they're gonna do, who they're gonna go after, and so on. So um, interestingly, what I can see here is that they all, with the exception of the individual to the left here, uh, live in the same cell, the middle cell, Mwendo cell in Tali, um, funnily enough, in this relatively straight line. Now, I can find no uh, theoretically intuitive explanation of why it is that they do that, but nonetheless, they do. Uh, Emmanuel lives here, by the way, um, an important figure. This at this intersection point. Um, uh, they, <coughs> okay, so uh, I then put them together, the killers and the mobilizers, to see, well, okay, do the killers live close to the mobilizers? Does that explain it? And as you can see, no and there's nothing that goes on there. Um, so they said, well, maybe it has to do with the fact, maybe it's because there are other mobilizers who play less important roles in the mobilization of the community. So I then have these tier, second tier and third tier mobilizers as well. So a second tier mobilizer is an individual who didn't you know, participate in a meeting, but it's somebody who had a face-to-face -face meeting with another individual to, to get them to come out and participate. 
a tier three mobilizer is somebody who didn't do that, but is uh, somebody who led one of these attack groups to hunt uh, uh, for Tutsi, right? So anyway, I tried to define the universe of mobilizers. Um, and I, the reason, the way I identified them is through focus group interviews, um, involved several focus group interviews. And the individuals I've got here represent the consensus. There were a few individuals on the margins, people whose, whose role was a little opaque. Um, but these are the people for whom there was relative certainty uh, or consensus on um, had played these roles. Okay. Uh, so I put them all together to see, okay, well, with all of these mobilizers, does that explain something as well? Um, it's getting much harder now with so much data to be able to interpret this just by looking at it. So I began to do um, a little bit more sophisticated uh, uh, quantitative analysis. These are essentially regressions, again, logistic regressions that tries to measure the distance. So I was thinking computer to relative accuracy at this point if I have the GPS coordinates the relative distances between mobilizers and every single individual who participated in the violence. Effectively, after a long amount of data uh, crunching, no relationship, so pretty disappointed again. Um, <clears throat> okay, so then I think, well, maybe it has to do with where people live in relation to the roads. Um, maybe the, the, the channels of communication, the channels through which resources pass through ideas, people, uh, information, how this passes to the community, maybe this has something to do with it. So I then, the black lines represent both the major and the minor roadways through the community. And at the beginning, I thought, oh, I was kind of hopeful. It, it looks like there's some clustering around either side of these roads of killers. Um, but my eyes deceived me. The, uh, as soon as I do the regression analysis, I find that you know uh, people who didn't participate were just as likely to be clustered around those roads as well. So no luck there. Um, OK, so then I think, well, OK, maybe it has less to do um, with proximity, maybe it also has to do, let's think about this in terms of accessibility. So if you live, if you're more isolated as a household, you're far away as if you like from the center of activity or the center of life in the community, maybe you're less likely then to be sucked in or to be drawn in um, to what's going on inside this community. So this is an elevation, a digital elevation map of Rwanda, um, and basically shows altitude. And uh, it's relatively coarse, data, but essentially every, so raster, the raster data, but essentially every square in that grid represents a, just an area about 90 by 90, 90 meters and represents a distinct elevation point. Um, and again, I was once again hopeful because it seemed that in these darker areas where the elevation is higher, there are relatively few um, uh, par uh, participants in the violence. It seems that because they don't seem to be living up there in that northern central corner of Rwanda that where it's very, it's very high and relatively <coughs> inaccessible. Um, and I thought maybe I should also not look at altitude, maybe I also should look at the steepness of the slopes, because that also might have something to do with it. The terrain basically might have something to do with it. So I measure steepness of the slope, and once again, it seems like in those darker areas that there are very few uh, participants, very few perpetrators. However, um, I was thwarted once again, because when I do the regression analysis, it seems that non-killers were equally as unlikely to uh, want to live in those inaccessible, poor terrain areas. Okay, so, Final hypothesis, I was like, okay, or almost final hypothesis, I was like, right, maybe it has something to do with where they live in relation to where the targets are, where the victims live, so where the Tutsi live. So I think, okay, so these green crosses um, represent the household, the Tutsi households um, uh, 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 in, in sector Tare. So I thought maybe the killers live close to them, um, and so they're kind of drawn in to the violence that way. Um, and so I put this up there, I test it, no, it's not true. Um, they don't live particularly close. So I think, well, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe they live particularly far, because those people who live close 
to uh, the Tutsi may have special relationships with them. Maybe their neighbors, maybe their friends, maybe the causal logic runs in completely the opposite direction. So, but no, sadly, no, that's not the case. So, okay. Uh, this is a map that shows everybody together, the killers, the victims, the non-killers, and so forth. Um, but again, no obvious spatial pattern that emerges. Final idea was that maybe this has to, to do with um, neighborhood effects. So what I decided to do is construct neighborhoods, um, micro-neighborhoods or micro-communities. Uh, uh, like. So basically, I draw a radius around each of these killers' households at various distances, 100 meters, 200 meters, 300 meters, 400 meters. And I try it, and what I do is I count how many people live within your neighborhood, defined at these different levels, um, and also participated in the violence. In other words, do killers live close to other killers? Um, I obviously have to control for population density, so I take it um, not simply, I don't count how many people live in your community who are killers, I count the proportion of killers uh, within your neighborhood, so as a percentage of all the, the people who live in your neighborhood. Um, this, I did this at 100 meters, and I did this at 200, I did it at various levels, basically. Um, so I think now I can switch to, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, um, from doing all of this, two causal logics have emerged. Um, the first idea was that maybe it has something to do with accessibility. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the neighborhood effects in a moment. Maybe it has something to do with accessibility, so distance, elevation, terrain, maybe, you know, simply because you don't live, you live so relatively isolated, that explains why it is that you, are, you happen to come into the violence or not. Um, and as I showed you, I didn't find any evidence to support the idea um, or the causal logic of accessibility. So then I start thinking maybe it has something to do with these spheres of influence, right? These neighborhood effects that I've been talking about. And here, when I finally plugged all these data into the, the software, what I do find is indeed that killers are likely to live closer to other killers. Um, and, okay, I'll just put these, uh, they're probably not that interesting, but they're interesting to me because I spend so much time collecting these data. I'm going to explain them nonetheless. Um, but effectively, what you've got here um, are odds ratios. So it's a probabilistic measure of uh, whether another killer is likely to live in close proximity to, to, to other killers. And what this says is if you live within 100 meters of a killer, um, the odds of your having another, the proportion of killers living in your neighborhood also goes up. Um, and that's highly statistically significant. So three stars, meaning the 1% threshold. Um, I tested again at various distances, and the robustness of that finding seems to stand up. Okay, so I finally got a result that something to do with spheres of influence and neighborhood effects. Influence triggered a thought. How much time should I? I know I'll probably overrun my time, so I'm going to start wrapping up. Keep going. Okay, I'll, I'll wrap it up quickly though. But so the idea of influence, and this is um, something that I wanted to, to, to highlight. Um, it's something uh, here. This is Emmanuel Recarajo's uh, social network. Emmanuel is the, the main mobilizing community figure, right? Um, what I decided to do was, well, let's see what influence this man has in his community. Let's map his social network. Um, so, and these are, these are the individuals who would go on to also become mobilizers, not tier one mobilizers, well, some of them are tier one, but also tier two mobilizers as well in the community. Probably can't read it at a distance, but I'll just quickly go around and explain what, what I find here. Isildur Habinshuti, um, I discover, belongs to the same political party as Emmanuel, and before the genocide, they also knew each other, and they were also friends. They used to drink together. Paul Mikorere, 
Emmanuel's older father-in-law, Francis Kayevoda, both François and Emmanuel served in the army together. Charles Rekelaho was his son, uh, 21 years at the time, 20 years old at the time. Erwin Rekelaho, his other son, 26 years old at the time. Nyakosa Bizimana, same political party, the NDR in Rwanda, um, <coughs> was employed by, had a client, a kind of a patron-client relation between himself and Emmanuel. He would do odd jobs for Emmanuel as he wanted them. Dennis Kazungu, um, they lived close to each other. They lived by the, within 100 meters of each other. They were neighbors. They were also very close friends before the genocide. Origen Gatera, Origen Gatera, the two of them founded a cooperative together before the genocide. So they, they had a pre-genocide friendship. The only person among those mobilizers who had no previous close relationship between himself and the main mobilizing figure in the community is Ernest Mulindo. Ernest was the cell responsable, if you like, the, the official uh, representation of the state authority in Rwanda, um, but he had no close relationship. And actually, his role um, was a somewhat reluctant role in the in the violence in Rwanda, um, with people reporting that he participated reluctantly at the beginning, but because it was simply incumbent upon him in his role or capacity as the responsible. <coughs> so Emmanuel um, has influence, right? Um, and I can go back now. Yeah. Okay. So in Rwanda, I start to think about what the survey data, I remembered some of my survey data that talked about the role of influence. I asked, what as, as I, the first thing I had discovered from this, you know, the work in the field was that um, there were these small numbers of radicals who mobilized the community. It wasn't that there was this mass spontaneous movement. There were individuals who mechanically went out and systematically mobilized individuals, right? So I reverse Edmund Burke's adage here that all it takes for good to fail is for a few evil men to do something, which is what happened in the context of Rwanda, and particularly in the context of Thai. Um, the second is what I termed in-group policing. It's not a particularly nice term, but it's one that comes out of theoretical literature. That basically, um, social context, that what the consequences of participating or not participating in the violence are for you as an individual. So I asked questions about this um, in the survey, so the stuff that I actually got on the first. So I went back to this stuff. Um, and I asked this question, so what I asked this open-ended question, what happened to people who didn't participate in the attack groups? Um, at the time, uh, what, what, just 30, 35% people said that there was some kind of consequence. Um, and that consequence was usually either uh, some kind of monetary fine, that they were fined money for not participating, or they had their cows confiscated. I also asked the same question for people who were caught helping Tutsi. And here, a higher percentage, people say, well, if you were found helping Tutsi, 73% report that, uh, that there were serious consequences for you. Um, okay, so influence uh, seemed to matter. Um, so, and this is where um, I have yet to explore the data uh, more carefully, but I wanted to test this idea that social networks were important in explaining differential selection into the violence, right? So, I very crude hypotheses, um, I've collected um, survey data that map a sample of the community's social network to map the entire social network of 2,500 individuals um, would challenge any computer and definitely give me a headache. But as I took a sample of about, uh, it was 130 um, individuals, and I tried to map their social network and to see whether, did they have in their social networks, did they know other killers more than non-killers? Um, and if so, um, what type of social or interpersonal tie matters? Because obviously everybody, particularly in a small community like this, where population density is so high, are going to have some type of relationship with that individual. But the question, uh, theoretically, that's interesting is, well, what type of social relationship matters, right? And just to illustrate why that's important, in Emmanuel Vecarajo's case, he had three sons. 
The third son, the eldest son, um, different mother to one of the other sons, by the way, but lived in the same household as the other two sons, Erlon and Charles, didn't participate in the violence. So clearly, not everything can be explained by social ties, right? Um, the survey data has not yet been exhaustively analyzed, but the early data do seem to suggest that one important type of relationship are kinship relations, uh, family relationships. So you're more likely to call or call upon or to influence people who are in the same kinship network as yourself. And that's defined quite broadly, so not just uh, members of your nuclear family, but actually members of your extended family as well. Um, so there's that. So the concluding thoughts. The research, I think, largely corroborates what is the emerging consensus on perpetrator character um, in genocide, in Rwanda's genocide in particular, that basically, with the exception of these mobilizing agents, we're talking about ordinary men caught up in extraordinary circumstances, right? I think what this is suggesting, though I have yet to, to go further with the data here, um, disposition, uh, predisposition, individual disposition, okay, I don't think I've refuted it. I don't think we can say there's no such thing as a proclivity to participate in these types of things, because, as I just pointed out, that distinction between the sons, Emmanuel's sons, um, but I think I have highlighted the situational pressures are also important. So we have to get away from methodologically individualist preoccupations um, or explanations of, uh, of violence, right? And I think that this has an implication, um, I think in terrorism uh, studies are beginning to come to the same consensus as well, that questions of why people come to participate in extraordinary violence, be it terrorism or genocide and so forth, need can only be understood if you understand how people come to participate. And the how, the recruitment process or the mobilization process in the case of Rwanda, may perceive the why. So it may be that you are selected into the violence because your dad says, son, come with me. Um, the justifications that you give, the why, may follow. It's because the Tutsi the enemy. It's because um, historically they're going to bring back, they've always oppressed us and they're going to bring back the Tutsi monarchy. <coughs> so your ideological or your rationale for, for why that happens may actually be following from how. So I think we need to study more closely micro-mobilization to be able to understand this. Um, and then finally, uh, as I have already indicated, um, we need to understand, and this I think is not a radical idea, um, but I think again, to get away from the methodologically individualist bias, to understand that violence is a social rather than atomistic process. Um, and in the context of Rwanda, what these data suggest, those neighborhood effects, which are robust, um, suggest that horizontal pressures, your peer group pressures, are important. Um, and uh, uh, I think that uh, it, it merits further research to understand this. Remember that um, one of the distinctive characteristics of Rwanda, of course, is its remarkably high population density, and that's led to speculation that maybe there was some kind of neo-Malthusian ecological resource crunch that took place that explains the genocide. I don't think that's the mechanism that's going on here. I think that in communities where people live very close to each other, the peer pressure effects are simply stronger, they're higher. When you live closer uh, to each other, it's much harder to avoid scrutiny. It's much harder to... Uh, um, uh, to avoid not only vertical scrutiny, what the state looks down and what you're doing or not doing, but also what your peer group does, what your neighbors do. And in a community like Tawe, where, as you can see, the topography is such that it's very hard to be invisible, um, I think that only makes peer pressures all the stronger. Okay, I know I've run way, way over. I apologize. Um, I didn't think it was going to take as long to get to this point of showing the data, um, but please um, 
feel free to throw out anything um, <coughs> creative. I really would like love to hear what people think about some of the, the thinking that's gone behind this project. Thank you. Thank you.